Good afternoon. What a wonderful thing to be able to sing of the Father's deep love for us and to sing what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And as we're singing, how we look forward to this feast before us later this afternoon. Uh, we're in the letter of James. Let's turn to James chapter 5 as we come closer to the end. James chapter 5. And two weeks ago, we were looked at the verses in this section from verses 13 through to 18, uh, and we're still in that section. But let's read that section again together, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing songs, praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it would not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. This is the precious word of God as we turn our attention to this word today. And today we're just considering verses 14 and 15 of James chapter 5, so we'll probably be in James uh, at least another two sermons. We, we'll see how that goes. And, uh, so we're busy with this section 13 to 18, the last chapter of James. The predominant theme, as you've already noted here, is prayer. And he's been praying, if any is suffering, let him pray. And prayer has come up and will still come up here towards the end of the letter, and today he gives us a specific, a specific command, if you like, regarding a specific group of people and to pray for him. And the sermon's title is The Prayer of Faith. The Prayer of Faith. And the charismatic movement has been most forward in taking the early apostolic ministry in the first and second centuries as the norm for the church today. In other words, the continuance of the miraculous signs and gifts through the Holy Spirit given to the apostles and others in the establishment of the early Christian church. And we may recall, as Acts reminds us in chapter, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the promise of Christ, the statement of Christ to his apostles on that day of Pentecost uh, that was to come in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And there are those today who insist on the continuance rather than the cessation of miraculous gifts, or as some call them, spectacular gifts, in the church, and they would give us the excuse of the lack of faith 
that is given for the failure of these supernatural gifts, the expectations of signs and wonders in what they uh, claim should be the norm for the Christian church today. And so it's with these glasses that we need to view some of the things here in James's letter. And of course, as always, we need to consider the teaching of all scripture, and particularly the teaching of Christ, the teaching and the practice of the apostles uh, as they established, as we establish a biblical view of prayer and this rather controversial prayer of faith that I'm sure you've already uh, noted here in our text. And so to help us to see not only what the text says uh, in the first century, but what it says and means for us today, we're going to make several observations from this text, uh, four I think to be exact, and then we conclude with uh, three uh, simple points on prayer as lessons and applications for us today. So here's our text. Is anyone, uh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Consider the first place the very sick and infirm may call for the elders of the church to pray over them. The very sick and infirm may call for the elders of the church to pray over them. And James says plainly, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what is the sick he's talking about? And the Greek word here for sick implies those weak and those without strength. So the condition of sick in this case would seem to indicate those who indisposed and unable reasonably to gather with God's people. They are laid low if we want to use those terms. And then it may be intended also in the words that follow, let them pray over him. You can only pray over someone if they lie down or if they kneel in front of you to signify possibly that the sick person is totally indisposed. Now bearing in mind the context in James chapter 1 and the apostolic dispensation of miracles and the laying on of hands we should note that this is not a perpetual command or an institution of the Lord Jesus Christ, as some churches would imply or say categorically. This is an institution of the Lord Jesus Christ, as is baptism. But this before us is not. This was in the apostolic age. This, however, is appropriate in the case of very serious illness. And some have suggested in James that this was really cases only of sickness unto death. But there's nothing in the text to limit us to these occasions here or in other scriptures. And something else we should note here is that you are to call the elders plural of the church. And of course this notes the assumption of the plurality of elders that was the apostolic practice. And Pastor Sam preached about that blessing even here today. And the modern, the, the modern model of a lone ranger pastor is a departure 
from the biblical model of plurality of eldership. And you may have noticed in our Southern California Association Reformed Baptist churches, in the prayer requests that come to us from some of the smallest churches, what do they pray for? Pray that the Lord would raise up elders and deacons and more men to serve. That is, in fact, the biblical and apostolic tradition. Well, if you believe, as we do in this church, in the cessation of the supernatural gifts at the end of the apostolic age, we must also note that these things are written for our instruction. And God's power and God's prayer and the call to prayer has not ceased, nor the expectation of the Lord's miraculous hand which is evidenced in the life of the believers every day in many ways. We recognize miracles even in our own lives. And it is proper, as in this case suggested, to call on the elders for prayer in the case of indisposed sickness. And weekly, as we do, as we bring these requests to our bulletin and we pray, and as we pray daily for requests to God in prayer and in the church, not with the demands and expectations of answers that we would like, but in humble submission to our Heavenly Father, who knows, because of His love for us, what we need before we ask. In prayer, it is a confident expression of faith in God expressed in the church as a means of grace to his people. That's why prayer is a means of grace. And so it is quite appropriate for those indisposed. Please, can the pastors come to my home and pray for my loved one who is laid low, who is sick. Number two, we consider in the second place, the practice of anointing with oil and praying over the sick, as we see here in James. The practice of anointing with oil and praying over the sick. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now here again, we need to think about the context, and we need to think about who the recipients of this letter are. They were the Jews. They were the Jews in dispersion. And oil among the Hebrews was something that was used in their daily lives and in their religious lives. We've just been reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And olive oil was used in anointing. Olive oil was used in declaring a forgiveness of sins and touching the ears of the priests. And for the Hebrews, it was normally a symbol of divine grace. And also it was a sign of the power and grace of the Spirit in miraculous healing, as we have here in James. You remember Jacob, who had that miraculous dream and vision as he lay with his head on a stone. And what did he do when he woke up? He poured oil over the stone where he slept when he awoke from the dream. And he called the place Bethel and made there an oath to the Lord his God. The anointed oil was a sign of God's blessing and grace being bestowed on the prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Testament. And the psalmist speaks with great delight of the Lord anointing his head with oil. And the oil for joy, the oil of joy for mourning, the psalmist says. And then, of course, the Jews 
had the practice of anointing people who were sick with oil. We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He'd been hurt and cut and damaged, and he poured oil and wine over the wounds. He went and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, says Luke 10.34. But this was not the case here in James. Here the oil is used as a symbol without healing property. Yet James comes and he instructs the church elders to anoint the person with oil. Christians have through the centuries struggled to understand this verse. And probably thanks in part to the Roman Catholic Church and their practice of extreme unction. And they believe this pouring of oil over someone and praying to be the final institution of Christ and the anointing of normally olive oil and administering the sacrament or what they call the last rites together with the forgiveness of sins. And this clearly is an unbiblical heresy in which it is believed that the dying person's remaining sin are wiped away through the priest's administered sacrament. So the pouring of oil here in prayer, the closest biblical parallel to our text, we actually find in Mark chapter 6. You remember when Jesus sent out the disciples in twos to preach and to perform miracles uh, throughout all Israel. Mark 6.13 we read, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil those who were sick and healed them. Yet we see nowhere was it instructed by Christ to anoint with oil. But this was inbred in the religious life and practice of the Jews, and it was allowed by Christ. And this passage, as well as our text in James 14, the oil seems to have been a visible, symbolic means of setting a sick person aside for God's miraculous intervention. Because that is exactly what is said in this text. And James does not specify it as an imperative act in and of itself, but something done in the name of the Lord. An action performed while calling upon the Lord in faith to heal. And importantly for us to note that it was not a perpetual institution of Christ or the apostles in the New Testament church call to prayer was and is and even is today. Well, let's come in the third place to consider number three, what we know so well. Apostolic signs and miracles were performed in the early church after Pentecost. Apostolic signs and miracles were performed in the early church after Pentecost. We need to remember in the early days of the church, and particularly, well, until the scriptures were completed, the apostles and the churches were literally carried along by the Holy Spirit in an unprecedented way. 
And we see this in the duty. People were healed when they touched Paul's handkerchiefs, uh, uh, handkerchief, and, and there were stories, the historical stories of people in, uh, people in Peter's shadow who were healed. But this is what the apostles did in this time. And not only in the writing of scriptures, but the Holy Spirit seemed in these days to carry the apostles along. They were warned in dreams not to go to a certain city, and the Holy Spirit was moving in an unprecedented way in those early days in the establishment of the New Testament church. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, assured his disciples, you may remember, that after his ascension and at the coming of the Spirit of Pentecost, not only would they do the deeds that Jesus did, but greater deeds than these they would do. This was known as what we've called the apostolic age. And the beginning of the Christian church was marked by signs and miracles uh, through the church and by the apostles. And so, as we see here in James, it was a time of miraculous healing by the apostles and even others in the church. And we hear of the gift of healing given to some in the early church. It's most reasonable to see this as a special dispensation of faith, given only occasionally and primarily during this apostolic age. And it is possible that this was, in fact, what we are seeing in these churches at this time when James categorically says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, these, this was the establishment of the New Testament church. They did not have the scriptures, but the scriptures now are written, and they tell us in these last days. He has spoken to us through his son and through his living word. And I quote, listen to this. In the times of miraculous healing, the sick was to be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. Expositors generally confined this anointing with oil to having the power of working miracles. And when miracles cease, this institution also ceased the pouring of the oil. We have accounts of this being practiced in the church 200 years after Christ. And when the miraculous gifts ceased, this rite was laid aside. And I think that is put very well. And as was the case here in James, during the apostolic age of signs and miracles, it was a thing directed in cases where there was faith for healing as given by the Holy Spirit in both the one praying and in both the one receiving prayer. It was not commonly used, not even in the apostolic age, but during this age there were extraordinary measures of faith in the person anointing and those who were anointed. An extraordinary blessing may attend the observance of the direction for the sick, as one commentator has said. I quote again, however that be, there is one thing carefully to be observed here, that the healing of the sick is not ascribed to anointing with oil, but to prayer. But to prayer. The prayer of faith will save the sick. 
Prayer over the sick must proceed from and be accompanied with a lively faith. There must be faith both in the person praying and in the person being prayed for. In a time of sickness, it is not the cold and formal prayer that is effectual, but as we see here in James, the prayer of faith. And oil is used here not as a cure, but as a symbol for the cure. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This special dispensation, as some call it, did not mean it was the norm for any who were sick to be healed. As those who claim this dispensation should continue, and we will heal whoever comes to you. Whoops, they were not healed. You have a lack of faith. Our Savior alone did that. Heal all the sick who came to him. Our Savior did that. And it's so clear from the scriptures that sickness and suffering are not always healed. And afflictions are not always lifted, even when prayers are made in earnest faith. And I want to remind you, even prayers made in apostolic faith were not always heard. We read in Paul's example, his personal example in Second Corinthians, I beseech the Lord three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that should leave me. And he said to me, Your, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And those who worked with Paul, the other missionaries and the other disciples also fell ill and in some cases died. And there's no record of an attempt of miraculous healing there either. In fact, when Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, he writes this, Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. The apostle, he left a disciple ill. He left him behind. Because he was he didn't lay hands on him and heal him. And of course the noteworthy case in Philippians, one of my favorite little epistles concerning Epaphroditus, Paul says, For he's been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. He was left, though they prayed to be ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. The apostolic age of miracles and healing was used by the Holy Spirit in those days in the establishment of the church as signs and wonders that people might believe the gospel. And as the church is established that the final writings of the New Testament were con concluded by the Holy Spirit, God had finally and perfectly spoken in His Son the word of Christ, and that is what we have before us today, the word of Christ, that the age of spectacular healing and miracles came to an end, that apostolic age. But God still performs miracles, and God can still do the impossible. Brothers and sisters, here in our Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, we view wondrous miracles every couple of weeks. When the Lord adds to our number and one is baptized and professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
That is a miracle when God raises the dead in their trespasses and sins and they are made alive in Christ through the message of the Christ as it is proclaimed as it continues to be preached. This is most important faith. This is faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What about the ongoing miracle of the transformation of lives who were once dead in trespasses and sins? Haters of God now love the brothers and love Christ and worship God. And people saved by grace, God continues to sanctify them in his church daily through the word and through the work of the spirit in his heart. These are works of grace and ongoing miracles greater than the healing of a lame man. A miracle much greater than the, a blind who could never see and now sees is the bringing to life of someone dead in their trespasses and sins or laymen walking blind to see. And I would give you that the church is not in a state of unbelief and lack of faith because there are no longer healings and miracles. Here's the fact. 100% mortality rate of humanity testifies to the fact that all of us will eventually succumb to illness injury or old age until Christ comes until he comes when we come to pray we do not make demands on God for the healing of others or any of our physical needs they were never promised they were never promised but even today God made through the prayer of faith the way that all our prayers ought to be prayed the prayer of faith believing God believing in God to save the one who is sick and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and perhaps viewed today after this apostolic age as some suggest as a typical promissory statement that does not necessarily list exceptions whether you accept that or not and a parallel in Jesus teaching where he says ask and it will be given you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks find and to one that knocks it will be open to him these passages may I suggest rather focus attention in this day and age of God's gracious invitation to pray and our rightful expectation of God's gracious response for Christ's sake in all of our prayers. Now I love our prayer meetings here because we beseech God, we pour out to our hearts to God, we do not make demands on God. But these are prayers of faith that the Lord will do what is good and right. He always does what is good and right for his people. But we must pray and we must pray in faith. The lack of our desired response from God does not diminish God's power, but augments his sovereignty. The Lord will do as he sees that is right. A humble submission to God's will should always underline every believer's petition to Christ. And the authors of Scripture make that clear to us, don't they? Passions, we've often quoted 1 John 5:14. This is the confidence we had towards Him that if we ask anything, 
according to his will, he hears us. It is the sovereign God and no one else who will determine the answers to our prayers. And these are always heard because they were in Christ's name and they are for his sake. They will always be for our good, not necessarily for our ease, not necessarily the way that you'd like God to answer the prayers. It's like going to someone and asking them a question that you know the answer to, and then they give you the answer that you don't want to hear, and so you don't pay attention. Not for our ease, but for our good and for God's glory. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Fourthly, fourthly and finally, There's another thing that comes up, and perhaps you've seen it here. The relation between sin and sickness and even death. The relation between sin and sickness and even death. Consider the last phrase of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he's gotten very ill. <laughs> and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And this, in fact testifies to the fact that some sickness and, may I say, possibly even death may come upon believers because of God's fatherly discipline of them. The first one I thought of was Ananias and Sapphira brought their property and lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead. And as we will observe the Lord's Supper a little later, you know what it was said to the Corinthian church who were in a mess. But they were believers. They were loved of God. But they were in a mess. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And they were doing this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But let's note an important caution here. Ha! You're sick. What did you do? You sinned. We must note this careful caution. God deals with the sinner, the sinning saint, and each one of his children differently, but with the same fatherly love and always to the same end for our restoration and our sanctification. We need to beware of presuming to interpret God's providential workings in our lives and especially in the lives of others, of our brothers and sisters. The secret workings of God belong to Him. We need to be very careful of drawing a one-to-one -one correspondence between sickness and even death and sin. This is what the Pharisees did. This is what they did. In fact, remember John chapter 1, verse, chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? He, he's been struck with the illness. He must have sinned. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of righteousness might be displayed on him. We must understand, as I'm sure we all do, that most human sickness, while not out of God's divine will, is simply the result of living in a fallen world and sin and death that has come to man. 
There's this display of effectiveness in prayer. In extraordinary times, we should no less observe the success of prayer. If God will, he will raise the saint, even the one at death's door, because the Lord may have more work for the saint before calling him known at home. And this is no less a display of God's power than a one who succumbs to his illness after prolonged suffering, that he may be more ready and fit for his entrance into God's glorious presence forever. Brothers and sisters, when we pray for the infirm, when we pray for those at death's door, don't say, I wish it was the apostolic age and we could just raise them up. But we pray the prayer of faith. Lord, here is your servant. He's at death's door. Would you raise him? And the Lord says, he's prepared. I'm taking him home. Or the Lord says, I'll raise him up because his work is not yet finished. This, brothers and sisters, is a comfort to us. Our times are in his hands. Whom shall we fear? Who can harm us? Who can snatch us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing and nobody. Nothing can befall us that is outside God's sovereign will. Yet we are commanded to pray. Even for the saint that is brought low because of sin, the Lord delivers. And be it his will, will raise him up and his sins will be forgiven as they always are in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus said to the man at the pool of Bethesda. Afterwards, Jesus found in the temple said to him, See you are well, sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The believer is commanded every day, as we reminded even in our bulletin, to pray for the forgiveness of sin. In Christian we are brought low, and we are bedridden sometimes, and we become very ill. This prayer must continue. And as Matthew Henry says, The great thing, therefore, we should beg of God for ourselves and others in the time of sickness is pardon for sin. Sin is both the root of sickness and the sting of it. If sin is pardoned, either affliction shall be removed in mercy, or we shall see that there is mercy in the continuance of it. When healing is founded upon pardon, we may say as Hezekiah did, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. When you are in sick and in pain, it's most common to cry, Oh, give me ease. Oh, restore me to health. But your prayer should rather and chiefly be, Oh, that God would pardon my sins. End of quote. Well, those are the observations from these two verses that we have. Perhaps it was a little defensive. But as we close by way of summary and for lessons and applications, let's consider three things briefly. And these are things that we can know and take away for sure. 
Number one, prayer is commanded, encouraged, and necessary. Prayer is commanded, encouraged, and necessary. Brothers and sisters, if we do not pray, how can we expect God's blessing on our lives? God's sovereignty in every detail of our lives does not render our prayers useless or unnecessary. Why would you ask us to pray? God has ordained to work through the prayers of his people to accomplish his sovereign will. Think about that for a second. If I do not pray, will God's will be done? Yes, it will. Can I thought God's sovereign will? No, I can't. And yet, God says, is anyone sick? Call the elders, pray. Is anyone suffering? He should pray. Why? Because God has ordained through the prayers of his church and his people to accomplish his very sovereign purposes and his will. For this reason, we are commanded to pray. We are also encouraged to pray as a means of relieving our burdens and casting them upon Christ because he cares for us. That's why prayer is a means of grace. It is a means of strengthening our faith. It's an act of faith and an act of strengthening our faith. It is a matter of saying, Lord, in everything, in the sickness, in, in this blessed times, in whatever it is, the Lord is in control, and I must come to him in prayer. I must unburden my heart. It's a means of grace. It's an act of faith and the strengthening of faith. Those loved by God, it is necessary to pray in faith, believing, and in the righteousness of Christ. When we pray, we lift up holy hands and petition heaven. As we'll see in next Lord's Day in our study, the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its working. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that yields great rewards of comfort, of consolation, and of blessing. It's an ever-flowing, refreshing fountain for every believer. And I would encourage you, bathe yourselves in prayer. Guard every thought and deed in your lives by washing it in prayer. And this is the mystery of mysteries, that God will use the prayers of his people to accomplish his sovereign will. That's why prayer is commanded. That's why prayer is encouraged. And that's why prayer is necessary. The second lesson, the second lesson, prayer is confident expectation. Prayer is confident expectation. God has guaranteed that the things we are able to pray according to his revealed will with absolute confidence, it's as if they are already answered. The passage from 1 John 5, the confidence to whom we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He answered that prayer. That prayer is yea and amen. What is that prayer? My sanctification. What is that prayer? The saving of sinners, the saving of the lost through the preached word of Christ. There are many things that we pray. We pray with great confidence. Every prayer offered because of suffering or sickness 
For the salvation of a loved one is heard, and it's received in heaven through our mediator, and for his sake, and for in his name it is answered after the counsel of his will, and always for the good of his people, and always for the glory of, of God. So take heart, pray without ceasing. When we pray, we enter the very presence of God. We come to that mercy seat that only the high priest could do once a year. We literally come into the presence of God through the blood of Christ. And Hebrews says we do this confidently and boldly. In Hebrews 10:9, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then he continues in verse 35 and he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Our confidence in prayer is not in ourselves. Our confidence in prayer is not our great faith. Our confidence in prayer is in our mediator who prays and who presents our requests to God. And Christ and his spirit perfects our prayers and they are always heard for Christ's sake. Thirdly and finally, never abandon. And this is especially for Reformed Baptist people. Never abandon or neglect prayer because you know God will accomplish his sovereign purposes anyway. Let me repeat that. Never abandon or neglect prayer because you know that God will accomplish his sovereign purposes anyway. The Lord will save whom we will save. The Lord will raise up whom we will save. Yet the Lord says, pray, pray. When Moses' hands dropped from being held up in the battle against the Malachites, his praying hands, when they dropped, the Amalekites prevailed. The Amalekites prevailed. And the storm raged around the boat. And it continued to rage around the boat. Until Jesus prayed, peace be still. And the storm was stilled. What God has ordained and accomplishes is through the faithful prayers of his people. Pray without ceasing. That's the test of a true disciple. I want to end with a great hymn that we, I don't think we sing it here. We may, uh, no, I don't think we've sung it. It was the first him that I could play on the organ. Yeah, I played the organ. I was like six years old. It's a joke. But this is a wonderful hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known in seasons of distress and grief. My soul has often found release and often escaped the tempter's snare by thy return. Sweet hour of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a living God. How we thank you that you are our Savior. How we thank you for your Spirit who is within us. How we thank you that he groans with sighs when we battle and do not know what we ought to pray. Oh, Lord, our prayer is, make us a praying people. Help us to commit every detail of our lives to you in prayer. Give us that great prayer of faith 
that when we bring our request to you, when we cast our cares upon Christ, when we bring a loved one who is sick to your throne and we pray, Oh Lord, you hear us and you will answer us and do what is good for us and do what is best for your glory. Oh Lord, make us a praying people, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.